record on this. Okay. So I guess I should do an introduction. How do I do this? This is only my second time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Welcome to the Oasis chat number two from the transpocalyptic. What is it? Transapocalyptic Oasis? I don't even know my That own. sounds about right. <laughs> okay. Oasis chat number two, transapocalyptic Oasis. I am Marshall Eon, and I'm here with Ryan Naked. Yeah, I like it. Ryan Naked. It is. <laughs> what usually is it? Na usually Nakade, but for the Oasis chat, we'll go, but we'll go with Naked. Right, yeah. I, I, I knew I was, I was intentionally getting it wrong, but I just thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> it's better than Nakade. Nakade, yeah. I'll take, I'll take naked oh. over Nakade any day. Well, when I thought about it, I was like, it's probably Nakade, but it looks like naked. So yeah. I'll just say that because it's funny or something. So is that, what, is that Japanese? Yeah. Are you from Japan? Uh, my dad is from Japan. I am originally from Hawaii. Hawaii. That's right. Okay. Aloha. Well, as you can see, I'm in the dojo right now. I love the dojo. It reminds me of the uh, the Matrix when uh, Neo was fighting Morpheus. That's exactly what it is. Nice. This is like a fan's rendering of that scene. Really? Yeah. Wow. Sweet. Yeah. So is it, is this cultural appropriation or something? Or yeah, man, I'm gonna have to cancel you and uh, cancel yeah. your recording. I think you're, <laughs> I think that might happen. Uh, but it's a good thing I've got all the swords and stuff. That's right. So, um, let's see, why are we here? What are we going to talk about? I know you had, uh, you were interested in having the lived experience or subjectively interpreted experience discussion. Uh, but I also noticed you have this, um, this harem of men, um, on your website. Yes, I do. You've got all these men. I love men, apparently. <laughs> yeah, you just... You keep coming out with them, and so we've got the um, the Titanium Man. There's another one that's like the Polarity Man. Is that right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And then we've got the the third one is the Vajra Man, right? Yeah. Now is that the trio? That is the trio. Are there any other men that you're working on, or there there is another one? I'm I'm trying to think if it's something that fits into one of those three categories. But it, the third one I'm thinking about is like something to do with values, like remixing or playing with values and expressing ideas from a different set of values or from the perspective of different values. So like the value remix man or something, I don't know. I like that. So, okay. So I, I want to understand this, these different men. And so the first man is the titanium man. And my understanding of that, it's like an upgrade on um, the steel man. So, and it's, it basically consists of, it's like a transcendent include kind of thing, right? Where you're attempting to include other views in this sort of higher upgraded view. Is that right? Maybe yeah. you can explain it better. Yeah, sure. It's, it's very simple from an from integral perspective, right? It's, you know, like 
we talk all the time about like differentiating between structure versus content or stage versus code. So there's, there's, you know, kind of the content of the idea. And then there's the, there's the structure, the level of complexity through which the idea is expressed through. And so I'm basically trying to introduce this concept to the public without getting into like, well, there we have, you know, we have states and stages and then we have this and that. And just to say, there's a difference between an idea and the level of complexity and nuance through which the idea is expressed. So that's really interesting. Uh, so an idea, the same idea can be expressed through different structures. Right. And I guess the example you give is like feminism. Yeah, those two examples in the article, like feminism and like a general like conservative immigration argument were from Hanzi's uh, um, Listing Society book. He gives them the book. So I just like copy and pasted them. The Listening Society? Yeah, are you familiar with the... Yeah, someone was someone once explained it to me, but I wasn't listening. Oh, it's just it's just part of his like. No, I'm just that like, was a joke. Oh, sorry. okay. But um. Oh, was wasn't listening. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I was listening <laughs> to the joke. Yeah, I need to reread the book. <laughs> so so yeah so that's actually feminism is a great example because there are obviously many forms of it. Mm-hmm. Many forms. And what what is the basic idea though that's being expressed in feminism that that what women are equal or they're not property or something? <laughs> what is the what is the basic idea of feminism? I mean, I guess it would depend on on who you ask, right? I mean, the thing that to me that's interesting about feminism is there's so many different ways you could go at it, right? Like there's there's the whole like anti-porn feminist movement. Yeah, right. it's really interesting, and that's at odds with like, the like pro-porn feminist movement. Exactly, exactly. There's like people who identify as like pro-life feminists, right? There's like libertarian feminism. There's eco-feminism. There's conventional like green social justice feminism, right? And then there's turf, trans-exclusive radical feminism. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. So it's a whole hodgepodge of. And they're because they're mad that like trans women haven't had to have the full female experience right. right they haven't had to grow up like they got to be men for a while and enjoy all the benefits and privileges and you know they didn't get all the oppression from being women so they're like mad they're like that's not fair <laughs> you get to bypass all that oppression and then call yourself a woman so but is well but is there i mean we we're just saying there's a basic idea and it gets filtered through various stages or stru of the structure, you know, various structures. Right, right. So what is that basic idea? It's something about equality of women, right? I, I really, I really don't like, I've like never read any feminist books or <laughs> I'm a, I'm a race guy. That's kind of my, my thing, but okay. You're, so feminism, I'm pretty, you're I'm a race pretty, fetishist, not I'm a, a race fetishist, integral race fetishist. I, though. That's a drink. I gotcha. <laughs> so, okay. So then let's look at another, let's titanium man, something else. Sure. Um, what, what's a good thing we can titanium man that, that, uh, relates to race. Well, I'll give you an example of something I was thinking about was uh, intersectionality. Yeah. So there's a book I really like called uh, Racial Identity Development, Integrating Emerging, Emerging Frameworks. And it's basically it has a whole bunch of different um, 
arguments and perspectives and, and different research, you know, the, the literature on uh, racial identity development, like people's subjective sense of racial identity goes through different stages that correlates pretty much exactly with what we know, understand about integral theory, right? Right. Um, and the book uh, was, well, part of the book that was, I thought was most interesting was critiquing intersectionality with another way of looking at kind of the intermixing of how being in a kind of system influences your identity. And they called it simultaneity. And they said the problem with intersectionality is that it's too like stagnant. Like you have these, you know, it's like you're a black yeah. woman and it gets kind of like locked into this grid. And so simultaneity is an even more fluid understanding of identity, kind of like from a complexity systems perspective, identity is an emergent property from the com complex interplay of personal, cultural, sociological, systemic factors, kind of like tetra arising from integral theory, right? So that to me was kind of like a titanium, it's like a one step more complex or advanced than intersectionality, but still kind of transcends and includes kind of some of the basic insights of, of intersectionality. What do you think? I think it was Jordan Peterson's insight or observation. He said like intersectional, if, if you, if you add up all the intersections and like all the different categories of oppression and all that, eventually you just end up in individualism. Hmm. Eventually you're just like, every person has a unique experience, you know, you're Japanese and you got a different experience here than you would have in during World War II, for example. So it's like right, right. your race doesn't necessarily tell us what kind of experience you're going to have or what kind of oppression you're going to experience. Um, so once you add up all that stuff, it just sort of inevitably leads to individualism. It's like, well, what, what was your individual experience? And you know, what, what kind of suffering have you had? And the intersectional lens is just, I guess it just, uh, makes things e makes it easier to think about things or um to categorize people and because i guess the problem was that you know black women black men were making progress but black women weren't and so kimberly crenshaw was like well let and i, and I think the example was um the sort of impetus for this whole thing was um, Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. Mm. And it sort of showed that it's like, well, he's a black man, but he still gets to, you know, he still gets to be a man and he still gets to oppress women and so on and so forth. So just looking at things in terms of just gender or just race is inadequate. We need to start looking at, we need to start stacking up these more, stacking up more categories. Right, right. But again, if ultimately, if, if you add everything up, eventually you arrive at individualism. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that perspective? I think there's, a, there's an interesting perspective, right? Because I think the, well, a little, little background about me would be kind of fun for you and for the, the viewers sure. of this, right? I, so I, uh, I'm a, my background's in mediation and conflict resolution, and I live in Portland, right? I live in Gresham outside of Portland. And so the kind of green scene and, you know, all of that is in my yeah, face every day. Are you right? having to, like, mediate between, like, uh, Antifa and the Proud Boys? 
anything like that? So I am, I am part of a grant funded project called Portland Peace Team, where that is like part of what we're supposed to be doing. Not, not wow. necessarily like live at a freaking rally, I'll probably die, right? But like <laughs> trying to, trying right. to set up the context to prevent that kind of shit from happening in the first place. Yeah. Um, right. And so part of what I recently did was I, um, there's like a kind of like a, a move and my organization has been like the lead, like the most like orange organization of all of the Portland networks. And so we were kind of, I think the, the executive director felt a pressure to start integrating more of these kind of equity and diversity ideas and trainings. Mm. And so I just volunteered and said, I'll teach it. I'll, I'm going to be the guy who's going to like own that before anyone else can own that. Cool. Right. I'm going to beat him to the punch and try to provide the most integrative meta perspective to these things and kind That's... of take the lead on that. And what's cool, Marshall, is that because I'm pretty much the only person there who's not white, <laughs> I happen to have a certain amount of authority and kind of affirmative action uh, privilege, right? Yeah, you, yeah, you're, you're, you're higher on the intersectional totem pole. Only by one variable, being Asian, which isn't even considered to be that like great. Well, you're but, a model <laughs> minority and you're a sellout to white supremacy. There you go. Say. So hire me. And you're almost um, passable, you know, like... Especially since I'm not uh, getting tanned every day in Hawaii, like I used to be. Right. Um, but anyway, I was like, well, I'll just own this and teach this. And, you know, my, my mediation center has is an interesting mix of people who are like super woke, you know, like super left and like in that whole scene. And also people who are like really conservative. Like there's one lady, my friend Diane, she's like super conservative, you know, Christian lady. Uh, and I taught the workshop, it was five hours and everyone said they loved it. So I was really happy. Like I felt like I had basically won at life. Um, but I think I think that the key thing when it comes to intersectionality is is looking at, you know, the for me that my interest is all of the categories, right, are social identity categories. Right. So like if you're we're looking at the intersection of like if you're black and a woman, right, how do those social those kind of external identities and the socialization dynamics that form your upper left quadrant experience and looking at the kind of lower left quadrant, lower right quadrant systems and contexts that may treat people differently enough so that you want to make a distinction conceptually or, or you know, linguistically. But I'm, I'm still curious, like, well, how does that actually combine uniquely with someone's just you totally unique upper left quadrant subjective experience so that we don't reduce that just to social identity, which is what right. I think is the main problem, right? It's a kind of, uh, I call it identity reductionism. So it's like any reductions like like Marshall is a white man, but there's a lot more to you than just being a white man. Hey right? man, don't don't assume my race <laughs> or your gender. Right. No, I'm, I'm tra I actually identify as transracial. Oh, transracial. But but that's it. But the transracial thing is interesting because that still means that like the idea of it, right, is that well, someone subjectively like inside, I can think of myself as something completely differently than my, than my social identity or how I've been socialized in society. Yeah, and it's so, true. I get so accused, whole... I get accused of wishing I was black or thinking I'm black. So there's, you know, there's something you about blackness. <laughs> really? You listen to hip hop or anything? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Sweet, dude. That's right. All right. We're going to get to that conversation, but so I could easily see um and you know i'm actually more comfortable around black people than white people white people with all their rules and social you know what a stigmas. 
I know, and so and so I can relax more around black people. And so I I could I could easily see turning that into like, well, maybe I'm really black on the inside. <laughs> you know, so the anyway, funny thing, were, yeah, the funny thing ahead. about that though is, I, I have I have thought about that that I think in certain like Portland is a very white like predominantly white city. You know, one of the most you know the highest percentage of white people. I think that actually makes it worse in terms of the kind of SJW dynamic. It's it becomes more tense, and it's just like because there are less like minority groups or people of color. There's like more pressure, like, oh, we're we not being like, like, I don't think like if you go to like Atlanta or Detroit, like primarily black towns, it's because it's like Detroit's like 80% black, you're not gonna make a big deal about it, right? That's just like the way it is in town. Yeah, it's the racial disparities. Right. That incites them. Right, exactly. And then you have to worry about like, you know, are we doing this correctly? Are we doing that correctly? And that's right getting kind of neurotic about it. Whereas if everyone was black and you wouldn't, wouldn't be, you know, necessary to like talk about it. Yeah. So, so what's the, what are the kinds of things that you're doing in uh, Portland with that peacekeeper mission? Oh boy. It's, uh, <laughs> we're still figuring it out, but the idea is to work with a lot of nonprofits and network to try to, um, promote some kind of scalable peace building infrastructure to prevent violence, specifically protest related violence from occurring. So they basically looped in all of the, the mediation centers during the riots last year, Portland lost 150 businesses. Uh, they just up and left like, I don't want like Antifa and Proud Boys, or whatever, burning my place and breaking my windows and fighting. So, so the, the city of Portland has an incentive, economic incentive to try to prevent that from happening. So. Right. Yeah. They, they called the mediators in the mediation centers. And that's you. That's me. Okay. So it's, uh, I have no idea what the hell we're going to do, but it's been, it pays well. Oh, you're working on it. We're working on it. Okay. It pays well. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. We're orange now. That's right. So, um, okay. So back to titanium man. Um, so that is, that is the, what is that? That's the integral move basically mm -hmm. is transcend and include. Right. And, and the very idea that an idea can be expressed at a higher level. So the example I always give is like Westboro Baptist church, Christianity. Yeah. I remember the Christianity. Christianity. Right. In contrast to like Meister Eckhart. Right. Exactly. So they're different. So they're lower and higher frequencies of the same basic ideas, and so on and so forth. Exactly. And so the titanium man move is always to raise the frequency. Yes. And then say, "What do you think about this?" Right. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's easy one. Just, it, it, it takes a easy. lot of work too, though. It does. Especially everybody has these like something. everybody has these like simplistic takes on everything. Totally. And so you try to like titanium man them, and they just like fall asleep or. Mm -hmm. So. How helpful is it really at the end of the day? 
I think my my hope with introducing the idea because I teach also teach workshops to the public on like dialogue and communication and depolarization. Gotcha. So that was kind of my attempt to just introduce the idea of distinguishing between content and stages. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, That's and, cool. and not to dismiss an idea just because it's expressed at a lower level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm having to do a lot of this stuff. Uh, so I'm in the diamond approach. Hmm. And we are working with the, the DEI activists in the school. Oh. And so that is part of the challenge. It's like, it's not enough to say, hey, that's all wrong, you know, or that's low frequency. Mm -hmm. um, we are also having to do more of the transcending and including, um, which it seems to be a really slow process. You know, because they've got their paradigm and it's a very simple paradigm. And that's why it's been selected for right. at such right. scale right. is because it's it explains some aspect of reality uh, well enough. And it's really easy to get. It's yeah. like I could explain that. I can explain the woke paradigm to you in about five minutes. Mm -hmm. You know? And you can get it and it's got it's got all those amber features right of like uh the good guys the bad guys you know mm -hmm. and all the rules and so on and so forth it's just a very simplistic simple frame um and that's that's kind of what it that's kind of what these movements need to be Right, right. In order to reach critical mass, you know, in order to yeah. become big enough to make an impact. Right. And so totally. It just seems like it just seems like reality from now on, and it's probably been this way for I don't know, thousands of years or something. But it's just like we're just going to be dealing with one amber movement after another, after another, after totally, another. And it's totally. just like, here we are again. Yep. <laughs> so. And the content may change of that, right? But but the kind of quality of expression it has is very amber-ish. Yes, the content changes. Right. The content changes and the structure remains the same. Right. It's like we're dealing with the same structure day in and day out, year in, year out. Right, so, totally. but it, it just seems like the transcendent include move is this very slow process where you got to like introduce, well, but then there's also this, here's another idea. And then you gotta, like, gotta let them do sort of the dialectic with that idea. And hopefully they're not getting triggered by it and, you know, calling you a racist or <laughs> And it's just this, it seems to be this slow process, mm -hmm. uh, but it's better than nothing, I guess. Right. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, can, can, I ask you, can I ask yeah. you about the, uh, so, so these, um, the DEI activists, so are they're in your like community? Yeah. Wow. 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 So what, what are they, I don't know a lot about the diamond approach, but what are they like wanting? Like, what are they trying to 
what kind of agenda they kind of push in the community? It seems like um, I don't want to get in trouble here, <laughs> but um, it seems like they're really sensitive to the racial disparities in the school. Mm. It's like okay. black people are they're whatever, 12 or 13 percent of the population. Why aren't they 12, 13 percent of the school? You know, they're probably less than one percent. And so what explains that and how do we fix it? And, um, you know, their view is, well, it's obvious that it's the system of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. That is the reason there's there's not enough people of color here. Okay. So, you know, they, they see that racial disparity, they want to correct it. Mm -hmm. And the best way that they seem to know how is by disseminating more of their views and values to, you know, to other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is just, and they're doing it through the structure of the school, which is through inquiries, right? We're doing, we're doing inquiry, they're optional inquiries at this point, mm-hmm. uh, doing inquiry into various biases that we might have. And, you know, also, but also, I guess, ex- our experiences of oppression or some such. Mm-hmm. I mean, I participated in the inquiries and I found them valuable because inquiries are valuable. It's like you can inquire into anything and you'll there's a good chance you're going to discover something you know and that includes whiteness and all that stuff mm-hmm. um but they seem to be it's like their choices of topics for inquiries and stuff it seems to be sort of um sort of entrenched they seem to be sort of stuck in a groove that critical social justice critical theory post-structuralist uh, green or pseudo green or whatever mm-hmm. groove, uh, you know, it's stuck in that, that worldview. And so there, and so there's like lots of friction as, mm. as people like us get in there mm. and start to want a more inclusive inclusion, a more diverse diversity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're sensitive to the, the racial disparities uh, and, and they jump to the conclusion that, well, it's this oppressive system. There must be something oppressive about this system. How do we fix that? Well, we've got to awaken people, right? Critical consciousness. Mm. We've got to awaken people to oppressive systems. Right. That seems to be the move. Gotcha. Um, and all that really means is, I mean, there is a, you know, there's something good and true. I mean, Wilbur integrated Marx and, you know, there's something good and true and beautiful about um, sensitivity to oppressive systems. Um, but it is highly reductionist and, you know, it's oversimplified. So, so that's the challenge is saying like, yeah, you're right. And Mm -hmm. you're going to have to learn a lot more. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to expand. 
And we're actually getting a little, it seems like we're getting some pushback. Like we're too, too intellectual, too highbrow, mm. you know? Right, right. So mm. the integral paradigm, it's fucking hard for people. Oh, and 100%. <laughs> they don't want to fucking do all that work. You know, it's like, give me something simple. Right. And that, and their paradigm is simple. It's like wherever we find a racial disparity in a system, that's white supremacy or systemic racism. Um, and we need to work, do the work, whatever that is. Do the work of uh, reducing the effects of that, you know, that oppressive power. Mm-hmm. So that's what's going on. Familiar story. And we just um, we just sort of came out of this period of really intense engagement on Facebook, actually, with some of the most devout, uh, which I believe surfaced the tribalism that's mm. present. Mm. And so that's important and necessary in a, in a school where ego defensiveness is not to be um, encouraged, let's put it that way. And so, um, so that was, that's one part of it. And then, of course, there's the part of addressing the actual content of the views and... Right. Um, so yeah, we're we're entering this really interesting stage of just trying to be understood. Hmm. Trying to be understood because like I said, the most devout they're they're like they're operating from a pure amber lens for the most part. And they can only separate us. You know, they can only separate people into for and against. Hmm. And so That's I could and so I do my best to bridge, you know, build bridges mm-hmm. and speak to their concerns. But it's like once you come in with the criticism or anything, even like expanding the frame is threatening. Mm-hmm. Expanding the frame feels threatening somehow. Right, right. Because it's like things are getting more complex when you do that. Exactly. And complexity engages the higher brain and it starts to be work Mm -hmm. right whereas like it's like lower brain amber structures uh it's like we've got the we've it's almost like we're born maybe we are born with you know the the structural supports for amber in the brain Mm -hmm. i mean every child becomes amber you know right right very few of them stay. I mean, I guess if they're brought up in a red culture, I guess I guess plenty of people stay in the red, in that red paradigm. But um, but regardless, I mean, it's we know it's it's a it's a simpler paradigm, simpler worldview. It's real easy to understand what's right and wrong. 
mm-hmm. and they're just trying to be good people and and do what's right and then they have these like brainiacs coming along and telling them that you know they're doing things all wrong and or the, or, or whatever right it's like we're not even saying that we're trying to have a nuanced conversation and the people are like Mm-hmm. So, mm. well, so Titania Manning is, uh, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, on the interpersonal level of, of really dealing with these people, I'm, I'm curious for you, you know, what has been effective and, you know, are there certain talking points or communication techniques or. You know, really the most important thing, and they're all different, you know, they're all individuals. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> um, but the most important thing, I think, is to meet in that green place of, yes, we, yes, we know that racism still matters, you know, it's still relevant. We're not, you know, so we're not like out of touch, like these right wingers or conservatives who are like, we solved racism, you know, 50 years ago or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the civil rights movement, we're done. Right, right. And there might be, you know, it's it's like kind of say there's a little truth to that critical race theory critique of the civil rights movement as white people white liberals, Mm -hmm. liberalism, basically just doing like the bare minimum that we can do to get, you know, black people to shut up and leave us alone kind of thing, you know, just to act like we did something and feel good about ourselves and then go back to our life of privilege. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there is, there is a lot of like hardcore denial on the right. So, but again, the, just the thing, the most important thing is to, is to meet in that place, that green place of we're sensitive to the suffering of marginalized people. Right, right. We recognize that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're on the same side. Right. <laughs> At least for about five seconds, you know? Right, right. Until you see the next thing. <laughs> Until you're like, and <laughs> so, I, the, so the and part, I'm curious, like, what would be the other, you know, you, you, you said people, you know, react when you expand the frame. Yeah. Right? So I'm, I'm, what are the other dimensions that you would want them to understand that they would, that they're kind of pushing back against or they're reacting to? Um, You know, a lot of it comes down to just the narrowness of the lens, the, mm-hmm. all the exclusions, all the excluded truths. That's really hard. And then the other thing that's really hard is viewpoint diversity, mm-hmm. which I think, I guess, is this kind of yellow slash teal move, you know, to ask that. We not just have demographic diversity at green, race, gender, sexual orientation, etc. Mm-hmm. But we also have viewpoint diversity. Right, right. 
And that's hard because <laughs> that diversity can include critical views of them. Right, 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 exactly. Views that are critical of them or right. views that are maybe similar to theirs, but just different enough to be threatening. Mm. So that's, that's hard for people because because most people aren't used to taking other viewpoints. Mm -hmm. um, they might pay lip service to understanding each other, but they're not like getting deep into the, the, the alt-right fascists, you know, and trying to understand like, well, what do they, what do they really value? <laughs> you know, what do they really value that makes them believe what they believe? And, mm -hmm. You know, all that stuff, mm -hmm. um, which I've done, you know, it's like, I understand the entire ideological gamut. So these are, I don't know if you have to be integral in order to tolerate multiple viewpoints. Maybe you do, mm. you know, we're going to find out, <laughs> we're going to find out how because there's no, from the perspective of the diamond approach, you know, the diamond is multifaceted. Mm. The diamond includes all facets. And so by extension, um, we're including all facets, all perspectives, mm. Mm. all facets of an idea or topic. And so it's a natural sort of, it's a it's a it's a natural environment for viewpoint diversity right it just hasn't really developed mm -hmm. because nobody has there's been no need to really i mean there probably always has been a need to because there is a kind of socio-political dominance dominance of a particular socio-political worldview mm -hmm. for sure it's been needed but Nobody wants to speak out about it because nobody wants to get called a racist, fascist, bigot, you know? Mm -hmm. Which is what happens when you start to kind of challenge the frame and the dominant culture. And that's actually happened with me. I basically have had to stop caring about mm -hmm. being called a racist. Because that's, what, that's what's happened. Nobody says you're racist, but it's always like by implication, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're, uh, anti-social justice, mm -hmm. anti-black lives matter, you know, all these sort of ad racist adjacent th categories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, the viewpoint diversity thing mm -hmm. is I think critical for everyone, everywhere, this entire country. I mean, that's part of the liberal tradition is like, we are f for free speech and open-ended inquiry. And, you know, we're interested in all views. Right, right. That's the liberal tradition. And this right. movement is opposed to that. So it actually makes it harder in a way. But we'll mm -hmm. see, because we've got, you know, 
we do have a few we do have a maybe one person that i would call like an extremist mm-hmm. a radical uh but for the most part you know they we all share this context of the diamond approach that's the ultimate frame right. that this that this lower frame is sort of subordinate to right Right. And so our whole thing is like, well, let's just come in and, uh, you know, we're, we're just interested in doing the work of um, metabolizing, mm-hmm. metabolizing their views, metabolizing that frame, separating out what's false or what's incompatible and leaving the rest. Right, right. So, yeah, that's what's going on with us. Um, maybe your polarity man can help us. What it, can you explain that one to me? Sure, sure. Do you know about um, polarity management? Not necessarily. Okay, uh, it was developed by this guy named Barry Johnson, and um, basically the idea is that there are certain uh, polarities, right? Um, that are like neutral polarities, you know, yin yang and all of the, um, could be anything, right? Unity versus diversity. It could be uh, left versus right. It could be whatever. And the idea is that these polarities are just a part, you know, kind of an intrinsic aspect of the cosmos. So you can't really like get rid of them or or there's always going to be some kind of polar tension, right? Some kind of values, polarity dynamic going on. And each polarity has a good side and a bad side, right? So um, like if you look at diversity, there are beautiful things about diversity and there are shadows of diversity and same thing with unity or similarity, right? Um, left, there's great things, there's bad things, right, there's great things, there's bad. So the idea is you try to flesh out the entire polarity space using four quadrants, right? Because you have the two polarities and the good parts and the bad parts. And the idea is mm. given that we can't get away from that polarity and if you try to double down on one, it just creates the shadow of the other one. So right. how do we oscillate between the two polarities consciously only on the good parts, right? So we're going to oscillate, get the good parts of one side, get the good parts of the other, and avoid the shadow sides. So that's basically the, the idea of the polarity man then is any argument is basically one side of a polarity that's usually critiquing the bad side of the opposite polarity. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? So it's a whole map. The good side of one polarity is always focused on the bad side of the other polarity. You got it. Right. So the polarity management, that's just make that's just become conscious of that whole polarity space, right? All the polarities and all and the that's because of, of the parts. split. Splitting. Psychological splitting where I see myself as all good, I see you as all bad. Right, right. So that's cool, polarity management. Mm-hmm. So what's an example of that? If we're talking about, let's say race, mm, mm. Uh, white supremacy. Hmm. That's interesting. I've... Hmm, yeah, well, you better oh, think about this, man. I, I, I think I think it you is it big, is my big job. bucks to think about this. It, it, you know the the thing that's most interesting to me. I, I, we can think about how this is a polarity is because this is a huge part of CRT. But obviously, uh, you know, as a mediation center, we're dealing with this right now, which is um, 
you know, part of the part of the whole CRT critique, which I think definitely has some truth to it, but it can definitely get out of control, right? Is this idea is a critique of modern liberal neutralism, right? Like the idea that institutions could be neutral and and have act out a kind of equality under the law and treat everyone the same when they're in fact contaminated with a kind of pervasive implicit bias, i.e. white supremacy, or are structurally arranged in such a way as to have a de facto oppressive influence on one group over another one. Um, and so, you know, part of it being a mediator or facilitator is we're supposed to be neutral, right? We're, we're not supposed to like give an opinion. Uh, we're just gonna help the parties arrive at the resolution themselves. But the, the critique of neutralism is, well, if you are neutral when there's a power imbalance, you just support the side that has more power, right? So part of the trainings that I give, that I try to really thread the needle with is to give scenarios for people to think about in the mediation where the power dynamics are really ambiguous, right? So you could have mm. like a, like, so one example I came up with is, let's say there's an Iraqi family who just immigrated to Portland. They're new to the neighborhood. And there's a mediation where there's five members of the Iraqi community and two white people. And the white people say, like, go back to where you came from or something. So in the neighborhood context, it's like, well, you know, the white people are part of the majority and they said something that was racist or whatever. But then the Iraqi, in the actual mediation, it's a five versus a two. The, the, the minority group has more people in that particular context. Yeah. So I'm trying to kind of complexify how people think about power relations and power dynamics. Right. Right. But I think the polarity man for the CRT thing is, yes, it would have something to do with like a neutralism versus equity or something. Right. Or equality versus equity or something like that. Where it's like we we have a, a universal law that treats everyone the same, versus more of like let's see what this particular person or group needs and then give them the specific resources for that thing, and that becomes a kind of an interesting dance. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you familiar with the Enneagram? Mm -hmm. I'm a five. Ah, uh, okay. So um, the inner triangle mm. is. I'm actually wearing it around my neck. Um, it represents the law of three. And down here, you basically have the polarity. Mm -hmm. Like these two points, three and six, represent the polarity. And these are resolved with the nine, the peacemaker. Interesting. So the nine, the nine represents sort of the reconciliation of these two sort of opposite points or polarities. So I just wanted to say that. And so polarity management is up here mm, and it's yes. sort of built, it's built into consciousness, you know, it's part of that sort of map of consciousness. Right. So, okay. We got the polarity man and then what's a Vajra man? Because, you know, in the diamond approach, we have a Vajra, Vajra body teaching. Hmm. And it's weird. It's really, it's some weird, really weird shit, man. Um, it opens up the, it opens up consciousness to ha have unilocal experiences. And so you're used to, you know about non-dual, right? In theory. Okay. From, from a dualistic perspective. Right. So, well, so you and I are doing the dualistic thing right now. Uh, probably you a little more than me, since I'm so much more enlightened. Uh, 
Obviously, uh, but but then there's this other there's this other possibility, and that's sort of like where Wilbur goes with, you know, up the stages and like up here you got non-dual, right? Um, that's like non-dual experience is like the peak, right? Diamond approaches oriented differently. It's like, well, here's the dual. It's almost like they're side by side. Ah, a polarity. Well, there's actually there's actually four distinct turnings of the teaching. Mm. So, first turning of the teaching is, and it can look hierarchical or not. It doesn't need to be hierarchical. First turning of the teaching has to do with the individual consciousness, and that's the world of dualism. the The perspective of the individual consciousness, the soul, and its identity. You know, it's identities and it's, um, it's attachments, object relations, so on and so forth. Essential aspects. It's like the experience of the individual consciousness, whether it's structured by the ego or not. And then, and then there, there's a second turning of the teaching, which is the boundless dimensions. And the boundless dimensions are your typical non-dual realizations. Um, and there's, there's sort of five of those that we work with. Um, the absolute, which is emptiness. You know, in Buddhism, it's sort of seen as the most fundamental realization is the empty ground of being. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, creative dynamism or the logos dimension. That's the source of um, creation. Mm. You know, logos and eros the creative aspect of reality and the ordering aspect of reality, creative dynamism. And then there's pure awareness, which is more like Advaita Vedanta, you ah. know, the infinite eternal consciousness. And, right. and then you get to like um, the dimension of pure presence, you know, boundless mm -hmm. presence where the, the, the experience is substantive uh, in contrast to awareness, which is clear and light. Mm -hmm. um, presence is substantial. It has density and texture and all that. So, and I think that's probably more like what Eckhart Tolle talks about. You know, he talks a lot about presence, mm -hmm. which is different from awareness. Interesting distinction. And then the fifth dimension that we work with is divine love, which is like the dimension of pure presence, but everything has an aspect, has an affect of love. Mm. And this is the more traditional Christian mystical right. experience that God right. is everywhere and God is love. Mm. Um, God is omnipresent and omnibenevolent. Omnibenev omnipresent and omnibenevolent are just another way of describing a non-dual experience of the loving nature of reality. So, you know, and these have a certain kind of hierarchy and at the same time, they don't need to. Um, you can have an experience of any of them at any time. You can realize one and not the other, you know. Um, so, but then the Vajra, the realization of the Vajra body is what begins the third and the fourth turnings. And Vajra body is a unilocal realization. 
Unilocal is, what does it sound like? One locale or one location? Mm -hmm. So from this view, all points in space and time contain all points in space and time. Oh, nice. There is one point. There's literally only one point, but it's everywhere in all points. So the, so the concepts of time and space, of extension in space, these concepts break down. Ah, got it, got it. So you become freed from the constraints of those concepts, those constructs, mm. which are seen to be constructs. Right. That are present. Ex the concept of extension is, is present in non-dual experience. Because they're characterized by a sense of expanse. You know? It's like, I feel like I'm one with everything. Right? There's a sense of expanse. I am the whole universe. There's this expanse. So space is still present in all of the non-dual experiences. The concept of space and extension but those eventually those can break down those can be seen through you know and they're useful constructs they structure our they're necessary they structure our relate reality in a certain way right. uh, but they can be transcended mm -hmm. and then i can't really tell you what it's like but um apparently if you know the um the William Blake poem. Uh, to see a world in a grain of sand and a, and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in, the, in an hour. So a whole world in a grain of sand. You know, he's playing, he's playing with time and space. Right, right. Those concepts. So... It seems like he had such realization. And he may have had that realization without any kind of non-dual realization. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like there's not necessarily, from the view of the diamond approach, um, mm -hmm. and ultimately in the, in the fourth turning comes in the view of non-hierarchy. Huh. And non-hierarchy is, is not like a green anti-hierarchy. Non-hierarchy includes hierarchy because it has no preferences, right? To really be non-hierarchical means you don't take a preference against hierarchy. Right, right. To do that is to enact hierarchy, <laughs> you right, know, right, right. performative contradiction. And that's actually the performative contradiction of green. It's like all you guys with hierarchy out there, you're all wrong and we're right, <laughs> you know? Right, right. So, so the view of non-hierarchy includes both hierarchy and a hierarchy or anti-hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Both are allowed. Right. Which is really interesting because it's like, well, you use hierarchy when it's necessary. I mean, this is very like a, it's very like second tier perspective. Right, right. right. Hierarchy where, where it's 
it, hierarchy arises, as, you know, the relevance arises um, as needed. You know? Okay. So, um, so anyway, that's all long, one long way of saying that we have this concept of the Vajra body. It's literally, it's like a vehicle to experience the unilocal realization. It's a particular kind of inner body. Um, it's basically like the inner um, vehicle or inner structure that's necessary to, it's like a spaceship or something, right? It's like mm -hmm. you get in this spaceship and you could just go to the moon, but this one has like the hyperdrive and it'll take you to the other galaxy or something. Right, right. So anyway, tell me, what is, um, what is Vajra man? <laughs> well, that was a beautiful explanation of, uh, it sounds really cool. I mean, I, I I'm going to check out the, if you want to check out, if you want to check out a book that expresses this view, there's one called Runaway Realization. Ooh, I like the and the idea behind Runaway Realization is like there is, you know, the, like Buddhism is all about enlightenment. Mm -hmm. From the perspective of the Diamond Approach, there's no such thing as enlightenment, or rather, there are many kinds of enlightenment. Ah, uh, interesting. And in fact, the realizations and enlightenments never stop. And that's the runaway. The runaway realization is like one realization after another, after another, after another. And, you know, it, it just, it's a cascade, mm. a continuous unfoldment of all these different kinds of enlightenment. Where versus, you know, some of the, the hierarchical views are like, well, here's the ultimate realization. Here's what you need to get to. Right, you know, and then right. you're done. Right, right. But every tradition is different. Every tradition argues, well, they, you know, they, they've been arguing for thousands of years, literally. You know, the, the Buddhists and the, the Vedantists, they've been arguing. Even within Buddhism, there have, been, there have been like these rancorous debates for thousands of years, which is the ultimate realization. In our view, simple. There is none, <laughs> you know? Mm. It's just they're all possibilities. Mm. Mm. That's awesome. So, runaway realization. Anyway, I'll check it out. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, Vajraman is is. I, I, after you said that, I feel like bad that I I call it the Vajraman. It's like so not like anything to do with like. No, nah, <laughs> like don't worry about actual, it, man. Like you know, like Vajra, you know, spirituality or like Tibetan Buddhism or anything. But it's basically like. Um, Kind of like the the idea of the titanium man, right? Is seeing a new the same idea in a new way, or or kind of making a, a new use for an old idea. So Vajraman is like feeling an idea differently, or feeling a meme differently, or or altering how the state of consciousness through which an idea is expressed, so that it has a different subjective impact on you emotionally and in terms of impacting your. State Interesting. Of so what is what's give me an example. So, so when you, okay, I'll, just, I'll give an example. So when you were just talking about these ideas, I was just kind of feeling into it. And the univocal, uni, what was it called? The uh, Unilocal. Unilocal, yeah. Like when you were describing that, I could, it was almost like a transmission. Like I could intuitively kind of start feeling 
what you're talking about, right? And, and you contrasted that with kind of Wilbur's system. And, and I could really, I was feeling into it. It's like osmosis. Uh, now, if I just read all everything you said from a script, I would have said the exact same words that you had just said, but I probably wouldn't have transmitted the actual essence or spirit of those ideas because I don't know what the hell any of those things are. Like I'm not, I haven't studied in this approach. I don't understand the philosophy. I haven't had any spiritual experiences that are like that. So I could, it would just be empty words. It would be like the computer, like reading something, you know, when I hit the buttons and it just reads something in a mechanical way. So the Vajraman is like, how do we take ideas that might have a certain emotional impact on us? Interesting. And like then an emotional valence. Emotional valence and changing that, right? So it's the same idea, but it lands differently with you. Interesting. It has me thinking about the opposite. How do we communicate this the emotional valence that people are looking for, but with different ideas and content? Ooh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's huge. Cause I think, that's you really know, the, the emotional, like green, right? Green is not like a state of consciousness, but culturally, right? What we label as things that we label as green, it does have a certain, like, I don't know how you feel green stuff, but I, I bet that we've probably feel something similarly internally when we make that label, because we're making, we're labeling the same things. And there's a kind of like sensitivity vibe or feeling quality, right? Yeah. Sensitivity, compassion, maybe love. I mean, sort of conventional heart qualities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe with a particular soft spot for like marginalized people or people who are at the margins or at, you know, lower run of the. Yeah. Just people that are suffering yeah. and, you know, they use these various lenses to make it quick and easy to understand who's suffering, you know? Right, right, exactly. Kind of making those groups salient. And I think that the, so the Vajraman thing is, or your reverse Vajraman thing, right, is like, I, I, I started noticing that I would express ideas that might have made sense rationally or logically, but they had no emotional impact on people. Even if they'd say like, oh, I understand what you're saying intellectually, but it's not going to motivate anyone to change their behavior because they're not moved emotionally by them. Yeah, what is, why is that? I think it's, it's the affect from my own consciousness or a lack of affect behind the words. Right, right? which is the five-ish thing, okay? Hmm. So if you're a typical five, you're going to be up in your head mm -hmm. and just kind of speaking your ideas. Um, but a more advanced five is going to have more, is going to be more in the body. Hmm. They're going to have more like embodied resonance. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess I wonder what the, what the difference is for you. Um, when you're able to make a difference versus not make a difference and not make an emotional impact. I think it, part of it depends on your audience, right, and who you're talking to. Yeah. So if I, I could say something that I would have a kind of emotional valence that would some people would really resonate with, and other people would be really allergic to. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, and so where I'm going with this right now is I'm thinking about the whole notion of considering your audience. It almost like takes you out of the immediacy of the moment. You're, you're sort of getting, you're sort of calculating. Uh, you're, as opposed to something like just being a pure instrument of truth, pure mm -hmm. channel for truth, and you speak your truth, and it has whatever impact it has. Right. Because sometimes triggering people is the right thing. Absolutely. That's a big part of uh, equity diversity philosophy. Is it? At least in Portland, like making people uncomfortable. Oh, okay. I see that. Yeah. What is the goal? Okay. So you make people uncomfortable so that they open up and they start to become, they become open to what? New views or something like that? Or I think, their, their privilege? Mm -hmm. I think, I think there's a couple, couple rationales, right? Are you familiar with Okun's uh, white supremacy characteristics? Have you seen that list? I've seen a number of those kinds of lists. Okay. So one of the characteristics that he lists are like that that's supposedly like a white supremacist value is um, like aversion to disagreement. Conflict averse. Okay, yeah. We are conflict averse. We want to keep things civil. Very Japanese value, right? That's how it oh. was that's how it was raised. Like ultra polite, do not challenge people, do not offend people, just kind of, you know, <laughs> don't bring up this, don't bring up the edgy stuff, right? It's very nine-ish. Don't, don't rock the boat. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, we, re we rec you know, as a culture, like everyone, they recognize that the nine provides the most stability. The oh, nine represents, in the Enneagram of process, it represents homeostasis. Hmm. As long as we stay at homeostasis, Nothing threatening is going to happen, but we stagnate. Stagnate. That's the nine-ish nine sloth. Right, right. Sort of reluctance to change, reluctance to move forward. Mm. Reluctance to leave the comfortable homeostasis. Yep. So I think that's so. Yeah, that nine-ish that nine-ish principle. It is. It is. It both creates for stable comfortable societies, experiences, groups, systems, mm. and it prevents something new from coming in. Ah, interesting. Kind of like Vishnu or something. So I think, I think part of that, the, you know, the kind of making people uncomfortable philosophy is like disrupting the comfort, right? Like disrupting your kind of entrenched position. Yes. And trying to inspire some kind of critical reflection or, or yeah. critical awakening. Right. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I think if done well, it can be really powerful. Like anything. Yeah, it's not being done well, is it? It's, it's sort I think of like. It's easy to weaponize. Forcing, yeah. Yeah. It's like, I think you have deal to be, with it, white male. You have to be really skilled, right, to really know how to disrupt someone and make them comfortable in a way that catalyzes more growth and opening and not making people shut down and react. You know, I've triggered a lot of people in my life. Have you? <laughs> <laughs>
just in the last like month or two, I've triggered a lot of people. Mm. And I, I'm not skillful about it. <laughs> and, um, but the interesting things happen. You know, sometimes someone will get triggered and I'll go away for a year and come back and they've shifted. Mm. And it's like, did that, my triggering them, like, did that help? Did that support them in some way? I just had to, in dealing with the activists, I had to accept that I had to get over the fact that I'm going to, that I'm triggering people. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what I say or how I try to like dress it up in like green uh, language and uh, um, people are going to get triggered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just had to accept that and deal with it. In, in your community, is there a kind of cultural norm around people, other Sangha members triggering each other? Like, is that kind of understood to be part of the spiritual path in any way? Some kind of shadow work or something? Or I wouldn't say... I guess there's a recognition that reactivity is... It's going to happen. Right. And so we have, proce we have a process um, that we, we do regularly called clearing. Hmm. Where, like the first time we did it, we, had, we were given an, an assignment to clear with 50 people in our group. Oh, well, 50 people. And during clearing, you sit down and you clear the air. Mm -hmm. You know, you're clearing all of the reactivity, all the obstructions, the projections, the object relations, all the judgments, all that stuff. You're clearing the air until it actually feels clear. There's nothing, there's none of that heavy crap in the way. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so there is the recognition that reactivity is inevitable. Right. And um, you're supposed to practice awareness and presence and curiosity, inquiry, that kind of thing. So there's a pretty decent container for handling that. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, and what's cool, what I, do, what I like about triggering diamond approach people most of the time, it's like when you trigger them, there's only so long that they can make it about you. There's oh. only so long that that person can stay in that you did this to me. Because eventually the awareness kicks in like, Oh, I'm in reactivity and that's nobody's fault, you know? Mm. I'm in reactivity and that's mine. Mm, mm. So that's the kind of thing I've really enjoyed from triggering Diamond Approach people. Mm. That shared context of taking ownership for your stuff. Totally. You know? Totally. That is really nice that taking responsibility or ownership for your stuff is yeah it's kind of like a norm it sounds like right like it's totally yeah it's totally a norm i've been i've been reading about like shadow alchemy hmm. and um there's this woman named carolyn mice m-y-s-s mm -hmm. -S. do you know her yeah I've, i read some of her stuff 
when I was a teenager. Okay, I, I heard some in that. Mm -hmm. I heard some. Yeah, I know her. Um, yeah. <laughs> so she talks about archetypes. And she talks about the survival archetypes. There are four survival archetypes that we all have. Right. And so they are the child, the saboteur, the prostitute, and the victim. Good memory. I only remembered prostitute. <laughs> of course you did. That was the only one of the four I remembered. Because <laughs> you're a straight male... Uh, you know, misogynist or anyway, <laughs> AKA teenager. Yeah. So, but the idea is that, you know, these are, these are, these are rooted in survival consciousness. And if, if Carolyn Mice's view is correct, that we are divine beings, uh, we don't need to be mired in survival consciousness maybe these serve these serve a function for sure you know someone's breaking into your house it's like fuck i'm a victim i gotta like well i guess even then you want to be a warrior <laughs> right, right they they must serve some function otherwise we wouldn't have them right. but we're too preoccupied with them and the whole woke movement is really about it's about reinforcing the victim archetype in a particular community, you know, social identity groups. It's like crystallizing those, crystallizing that identity, the victim identity. So, um, but in this process of shadow alchemy, you recognize, when you recognize the victim playing in yourself, when you ever feel that you are a victim of anything external, that anything external is like, doing something to you and, and it, it affects who you are and what you are and um, you alchemize it and you shift into the higher frequency of the victim which is the warrior hmm. and there are different ways to do that one of you know the basic one is kind of a gestalt it's like truth rant like you have no power over me they have no power over me you know, you kind of put the archetype in its place. You separate yourself from it. You take back your power. Because the survival archetypes are also disempowerment archetypes. Mm, mm. When you're in those identities, when you're in the victim identity, your power is cut off. And I mean your strength, your will, all of that. You are without it. And that person is oppressing you, you know, that person's got the power, sort of right. projecting it onto them. They've got the power I don't. And they're oppressing me. And this whole little thing is like, that's central to the whole like critical theory project. Um, seeing someone out there is it's this, uh, the power binary, mm -hmm. that power binary of oppressor and oppressed. In the diamond approach, we actually have a, it's called the rejecting object relation. It's the same thing. Rejecting object relation sees the self as small and weak, but good. Small, weak, soft, but good. Mm -hmm. And then the rejecting object is big and powerful and bad and evil and mean, you know? Right. 
So you can find that object relation, and that's the source of the psychological splitting that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. So in the shadow alchemy, again, you just you recognize the victim in yourself anytime you're in the victim, you immediately alchemize into the empowered archetype. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the empowered archetypes are the same as the mature masculinity. The, the four archetypes of mature masculinity, oh, which right, are right. king, warrior, magician, lover. So anyway, I don't know how I got off on that tangent. We're talking about the victim or something like that, victim identity. Yeah, I, let's talk about that for a second because one of the things I find when I, when I'm when I go into spaces that are like like hardcore woke spaces, right? So like my my um, workplace is mo- like more like moderate. Um, there's a lot of like orange values and energy kind of grounding things in my in my place, but um, I I, re- I gravitate towards certain conversational points when I'm in super woke environments. And one of the things I've really enjoyed exploring and talking about with people is like, if you've, you know, people always talking about like, you know, racialized trauma, right? Or like just Trump, you know, traumatic experiences of systemic racism or oppression or something. And one of my favorite things to talk about is like, you know, in terms of like an internal practice, right? In terms of the self work, like what's really been helpful for you? to start to heal that or overcome that, right? Like what are, what, what have, what has worked, what has not worked and what is the importance of doing the self work, right? The, the inner growth stuff. Um, and there, there's some interesting philosophical things I like to, I like to make discussions about philosophical topics and kind of as a way to kind of diving beneath the culture wars, right? Distract people. From- <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. Like, like one, one thing I, th- I think a lot about is like, you know, if, if we've, if we're nothing but a kind of postmodern patchwork of inherited cultural and social signifiers and our con- we are suffering from a kind of false consciousness because the system has conditioned our consciousness in such a way that we're either blind to our privilege or blind to the way we're being oppressed. And so then we kind of have that kind of awakening of a critical consciousness, right? If, if that it truly is the case, then what is the part, the inner part of your psyche, the inner part of your being that's able to actually take a meta perspective, question that, challenge that, and then replace the maladaptive social patterns that you've experienced with something more authentic, with something more coherent or resonate with who you are, right? Like if we're nothing more than social identities and who is doing that and what is that? Like if you're going to kick out your internalized white supremacy, you're going to purify yourself of all the white supremacy you've drunk in over the course of your life. What is going to replace it? Like, like where does that come from? Well, you know, the white white supremacy is not in us. It's outside of us. It's invisible. It's invisible and diffuse. I mean, implicit bias is part of it. Mm-hmm. I guess that is it. Is that it? Is that the sort of psychological, the upper left basis of white supremacy? That's well, their there's, supposition. There's, there's the implicit, there's the left hand, which would be like widespread implicit bias, right? And I think the right hand quadrant would be called structural violence, which is right. where you, you, it's kind of more like a lower right quadrant. Like you don't have access to resources equitably that other groups would have. Right. So I'm just, yeah, I'm just wondering whether the work of 
clearing yourself of white supremacy, you know, is it, it's not, I don't, I don't see them clearing themselves. Of course not. That's, that's why I make it a, a point of conversation. They don't, I don't see them clearing themselves of white supremacy. In fact, they are enacting, you know, they're all following yeah. colonial, they're all following colonialist scripts, you know, they're colonizing, they're colonizers. Post-colonial colonizers. I've heard of the word um, linguistic imperialism. Oh, that's good. <laughs> but it's beyond, it's beyond language, you know. Mm -hmm. Ideological imperialism. They really want to take over the institutions. I don't want to say take over because then it sounds... But they do want, <laughs> they do want to take over. Um... But I just, it's like, the, the, that's the perfect example of post-colonialism. They apply that critique to everyone but themselves. Mm -hmm. As they colonize the institutions, the government, you know. It's, it's a very uh, paradoxical phenomenon, right? I, th I think it's, it's the performative it's contradiction. The, the amber, the amber part of it, I think, is really the... The problematic aspect of um... well yeah because they're seeing us they're seeing uh it in terms of us versus them and we have the righteous paradigm so therefore we're the good guys and we can do no wrong um but it's also that performative contradiction of green right yeah i think the the thing that's that I think about, though, that's interesting is, do you remember, um, you know, when there was a large spike in, in Asian uh, hate crimes with COVID, and yeah. a lot of the crimes were being committed by black people, like on, like caught on camera and stuff. One of the narratives floating around the kind of woke sphere was, you know, it's internalized white supremacy. Right. So my, so if that's what they say, I say, okay, so if it is internalized, which I know, framing, framing it that way is pretty questionable, but let's say it is, right? then then how does one overcome that like if you've internal like what is the actual you know upper left quadrant work to to transcend that? the only the only move is to replace it with wokeness that's the only acceptable move is to do the work of developing critical consciousness right which means you have to join us that's the only way but then, then that, that's where my question comes in was, has that helped alleviate the subjective suffering that you've had no. from stuff? It's not supposed to do that. It's supposed to um, make you join the movement that's dismantling white supremacy. Yeah. They don't seem concerned with alleviating suffering. Am I wrong? No, I don't I don't think I don't think you're wrong at all. I think that No, you're not which is why I like to bring those up to talk about. Yeah, the alleviating, alleviating suffering. It really does it focuses on the solutions. Because right. the, the endless fixation on white supremacy, it's so disempowering. And it's also, you know, it seems like it can be insulting to people of color.
because it's basically saying, look, you can't achieve anything in this system, you know? You can't be free until white people decide. It's it's the same thing. It's 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 racism, you know? It's white race. You can't be free until white people decide to relinquish their privilege and their power over you. It's a very disempowering narrative. Yeah. It's disempowering and it's it's empowering white people. At the expense of people of color, ironically. Right, right. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of, you know, it's really unfortunate that um, a lot of things that I've found to be helpful conversation points really only work because I'm not white. Yeah. You know? Like, like I, I was trying to give people advice, like you should, and I, I was blind to my own privilege, Marshall. I didn't realize how I can get away with things. I, I can incite certain types of discussions uh right yeah that i can't right um i still so try. I try to i try to yeah you got you got to try right but i think i think the the thing that i'm always going back to right is like i think the 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 nuances of power and complexity right kind of the the dei backfire thing Right. I, some one guy called it a checkwitty instead of equity. It's like we're just checking boxes, and it's like, oh, do yeah, we have enough black people? Like, check. You know, do we have the right quotas? Right. Very white supremacist, right? Um, and so par part of that, part of that, I like to thing I like to poke at is um, all of the emphasis on whiteness, right? White supremacy, white fragility, white, yada 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 yada, right? It, it can have that effect of like. Just we're gonna just recenter all the white people again, right? Yeah, and make it recentering whiteness on whiteness instead of actually affirmatively boosting other voices. Yeah, right. We're kind of recentering what we're trying to get away from, which I don't find productive from from a social justice perspective, right? Yeah, there was this uh, great Kathy Young article called "The Problem with White Privilege Discourse." And I'm going to just read this paragraph from the end where she says, The social and economic disadvantages still faced by black Americans in 2021 are absolutely an important issue that needs to be addressed. Whether these disadvantages are primarily the effect of historical legacy racism or racial prejudice that still endures today. But if the conversation is about black disadvantage then that's what we should talk about reframing it as white privilege mm. is rather transparently intended despite all the denials to appeal to white guilt and shame the message to white people is not just we need to do more to ensure fair treatment for black americans but you have good things you don't deserve so I really appreciate that point. It's like, let's just talk about black disadvantage. Yeah. Yeah. You know, totally, let's totally. find, let's find the disparities and, you know, the actual disparities and explore those. Right. Right. Instead of like, just trying to blame the disparities on a disfavored demographic group. So that would be so much more inspiring. It would be more inspiring mm. to me mm. just personally. Wow. It's like, okay, 
Where are blacks disadvantaged? Let's talk about it. Let's find it. Let's figure it out. Let's work on it. But instead, it's like, oh, you've got white privilege. Mm -hmm. What I can't, there's, how am I going to solve that? You know? I, I think also that, you know, the whole, any type of privilege that anyone has, I think the, the conversation around privilege, uh, from my perspective, the kind of thing that people are trying to get at is some notion of like a blind spot. But you can't really get to the blind spot unless you understand how someone is disadvantaged, right? So, because you, you realize that through contrast, through juxtaposition. So I think that focusing affirmatively on how black people, for example, are disadvantaged, you can, you can implicitly infer that other people might have more of an advantage without making it kind of neurotically over fixating on these are all the privileges yeah. you have. Right? Yeah, yeah, just demonizing a whole demographic group. Yeah. And also, I think the other thing I, I, I think a lot about, too, is like the um, well, first of all, like what's funny is like I don't I don't like talking about white privilege or white supremacy because I'm not white. I don't know what it's like to be white. I haven't had that experience. But I got to tell you, man, you're you seem like I mean, you act white. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> What a compliment. So I would, I would, confer, I would confer my white privilege onto you. Please, please. I'd be like, he's white enough. You know? Can you uh, actually, I, I just appear white or pink or whatever this is. This, this is like a <laughs> ivory pink. But, um, but I'm Jewish, racially, or something. <laughs> um, so there's this entire, so like the alt-right would not consider me white. Sorry, man. <laughs> I know. So what a, what a bummer. So my, so my, my white privilege doesn't really pay off in the deep South, you know? Right. Although I'm passable. You can't really tell, you know, I don't have it's all a lot about of, passive. If you can pass, then you're, I can pass. <laughs> I fooled you, you know? Yeah. I can fool everyone else. I thought you were so, black this entire time. <laughs> That's more accurate. But um, so you, anyway, you were saying you don't like to talk about that kind of stuff. Well, I think I think the the thing. Well, it feels bigoted, doesn't it, for you to be like yeah, I'm not talking talk about, about like another, another group I'm not a part of. Like, <laughs> yeah, what the fuck, group, right? man? But. Uh... <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make me feel comfortable to do that. Yeah, um, it feels it's kind of very, yeah. But but I think that the um, like like my dad is from Japan, right? Mm -hmm. And he he confessed he told me basically that he's racist. Well, yeah, everyone in Japan's a racist. And and he has to look at that. That's not at all a racist thing to say, but <laughs> but uh. That's a very non-racist thing for him to say that he has right? to look at it. Right, right. That shows actually right. that he's not that racist. No, right, exactly, right. Because in because no. I know in Japan they're they're just like yeah, of course. Uh, the what's Koreans, the word? The Koreans suck, right? What's the word for a foreigner, white person? Gaijin. Gaijin. Yeah. But um. They're like, of course. Yeah. But like. My, my my dad like like from you know uh, equity social justice perspective like my dad does need to like do the work. Like he admitted, like he does values, like, like he, he actually admitted, like, 
black lives like like subconsciously do not matter as much as like other lives to him and and so if he needs to look at himself and really look at his own racist tendencies right talking about white privilege white like it's not going to like it it exonerates like he doesn't there's no cultural meme that will encourage him to do that he's just like oh i guess that's this like a white person thing whatever you know what i mean like it's not universal yeah the work isn't universalized and people in these woke spaces yeah. they talk about that but it still becomes the burden needs to be put on white people to do the work even if people of color have all the same racist internalized judgments and tendencies and thinking patterns yeah what's well, yeah the whole the the we've we've deviated from the universalist lens yeah in order to what blame blame things on the oppressors it's again it's that marxian power binary lens yeah and and you know it's funny because i i went to a, a study group um on the book um uh what was it called me and white supremacy do you know that one no thank god i think it's probably the worst book like <laughs> ever written like really i hate it's it. like the mind Kampf of the woke or something sure <laughs> like white fragility was um like looked like i don't know war and peace or something compared to, i mean this book was just like a horror like just really bad and uh, i hate i just really hated it and one of the ladies at the beginning of the book group she was like i was the only now my person in the group right and she told me she was like um like are you sure you want to like join us in this study group because like it's really hard for you to do this work as a person of color i'm like bitch you don't even know me <laughs> what the fuck like i felt very excluded right i was like hey like i'm showing up here right but you're not going to even like welcome me into the group because it's the emotional the emotional labor and, and so it's like it's just an it's just making an assumption right that was that she and, and i actually gave that example in my equity workshops right so what i talk about my kind of catch-all phrase that transcends and includes white supremacy is dominant narrative and dominant narratives are any kind of narratives or memes that you you might internalize without critically inspecting it doesn't matter if they're traditional like quote-unquote white supremacist dominant narratives from the mainstream culture or if they're woke dominant narratives that you're going to internalize and end up using it in a harmful way but I, I just promote critical consciousness across the board right question everything question the cultural context you're in like if you're a kid and you grew up in portland this is your world right and it needs to be questioned everything needs to be questioned critically from a meta perspective so that, that's that's something i offered in my class so some of my examples of dominant narratives were like uh, like um you know like um, like america uh, is a great place for everyone we're and, number one and uh people of color shouldn't educate white people about racism uh-huh and let's let's question all of them and, and look at how they could be harmful right and i gave that example of that lady telling me that i'm like i did not appreciate that i felt excluded from the from people who are trying to be inclusive <laughs> yeah that's the weird paradox it's like 
we we want we want to help black people, but not conservative black people, <laughs> you know, not black people that don't subscribe to the same paradigm. Mm. We want to exclude them. Is basically what the implication is. So diversity and inclusion—it's—it's it's misnomer. It's 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 looking at two a two limited set of variables, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm trying to always do. Is I'm trying to add complexity, nuance to understanding power, and how we think about power. But power different scales, different variables that play into power, right? And then there's also thinking about the variables that we're considering when we're thinking about things like diversity. Like, what are the actual viewpoints that need to be included? Yeah, this is really interesting. The conversation about power, it occurs to me. It's like, that's, that's a really valuable one to inquire into. Because I imagine everybody can conjure up a situation or context in their life where they have power. Mm -hmm. You know? Like, even if you're a black man, you go home to your family, you've got power there. Which is why they say black, straight black men are the white people of black people. Cis straight black men are the <laughs> white people of black people. Basically because, you know, they have the, po they have the most power of black people. So the, I guess the idea is it would be valuable for everybody, even if they think they're at the bottom of the totem pole, to inquire into where they have power. Did, yeah, did they know, why didn't they know that? You know, or yeah, yeah. How are they that. using it? You know, that kind of beautiful. thing. Beautiful, beautiful. Absolutely. This is a great kind of universalist inquiry. Adds more nuance to the conversation about power, right? Yeah, it takes it out of the split. Exactly. Exactly. It puts you subtly, it's like, oh, I have power. I have power? I guess I do. You know, I have power in this context, in this context, but not in this. Mm -hmm. I, I, I give people an exercise where they map that out. Their power. Yeah, it's like, what context do you have power or privilege in, and what context do you not have it in? Like, let's get really specific about the context. That's right? cool, man. Um, like, like, in DEI environments, I have a fuck ton of power. Especially if I'm the only non-white person in the room in Portland, dude. I can say whatever the hell I want to, basically. Well, not anything. But, but, you know, I, I, don't I have know, a man. lot of influence. Asian privilege does not go that far anymore. It really doesn't. We're, we're white adjacent. Is the term. I mean, you get... <laughs> well, you make more money than white people. I mean, I don't, but... <laughs> I bet you do. My wife makes like 10 times the amount that I do. What does she do, man? She works for the Department of Health uh, in the, for the state of Washington. That's a nice job. So she, she what, what's her race? What do you think? I don't know. It depends. I don't know. How, how, how racist are you? How racist are you? <laughs> I mean, you could be a... <laughs> you could be like a white fetishist. Okay, okay. <laughs> I could be. What else is on the table? Uh, or you could be a uh, ethnocentrist, racial ethnocentrist. Okay. Of Asian, course, you'd Asian only Asian marry. Asian. You'd only marry a Japanese woman. Okay. okay. Or else That's you bring good. you bring great shame and dishonor to your family name. Could be. Could be. 
very much a possibility. Uh, it, she might actually. She might even be a goat based on the pictures yeah. of your you babies. You know, you're posting pictures of your babies to Facebook. So, but she's not. So she, uh, she's probably not a goat. Um. So what? So what? What? We've probably, right. We have three probably, options on the table. You have one. You have a one out of three chance of getting it correct. I'm gonna say white. Why is that? Why are you guess white? Um, because it's it's really just simple. It's like it's hard to meet Japanese people over here. Oh, going with the statistical argument, the demographic. Yeah, argument. yeah, just like the likelihood of encountering. Unless you know, you could go to like Jap date or whatever. <laughs> You know, like J-Date, <laughs> J-Date for Japanese people. <laughs> okay, so so I'll, I will say that I met her in Hawaii, and then we moved to Portland. Oh, that changes everything. Yeah. Okay, so now she's like a Pacific Islander. Mm, okay, that's a good, interesting inference. She's white. Well, see, I knew it, man. I knew you were... <laughs> The fact that you showed up for this meeting today at all was, you know. Oh, proof, it's like that was a dead giveaway. Proof of proofs of your white fetishism. Of, of her blue eyes and blonde. She's actually uh, Polish. I have blue uh, eyes. Descent from. Uh, uh, she's from Detroit. Her family is Polish immigrants from Detroit, Michigan. Yeah, I've got. I think I've. Got, yeah, my grandfather was from Poland. Oh, cool. Or lived. Yeah, born and raised there, or something. I've actually. Uh, I've only dated uh, white women. Uh huh. So that not, is a sure sign. <laughs> that is a sure sign of internalized white supremacy. <laughs> which means, which means I gotta, I gotta do the work, man. You do. You need to get a divorce, so that you're not oppressing your people. That's right. Betraying them. You know, it it, it is funny because. You know, all the environments I've been in have been in mostly like spiritual adjacent yoga teaching integral environments, right? White people. That that was that was always my uh, spiritual white people. Spiritual white people. That's my that's my niche. Yeah. Gotcha, man. That's why I showed you, up for this podcast today. You're like the you know in the land of the blind, the man with one eye is king. Oh yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, so so you're like the the slanty eye in the land of the round eye. With that, only, right. That makes you king. That makes me. Well, <laughs> I like. I wish. This is but. getting very racist. It's really uncomfortable <laughs> for me right now. Well, you know, being being uncomfortable is a. Uh, <laughs> it's part it's of the way work. to disrupt white supremacy. It's part of the work, man. Yeah, I'm trying to disrupt your internalized white supremacist. Yeah, it's not happening. <laughs> Do I get any Jewish privilege? I think so. The the, the right, mm. the, the alt-right peeps, they definitely make the case for Jewish privilege. Uh, Jewish privilege mm. is where you get to pretend you're white and get the benefits mm. of being white while also being able to play the J card. You know, I'm oppressed. I'm eternally a victim. The, the Jewish thing is interesting, though, because it's complicated, man. I think that if you know the whole past is white thing, 
like if you were in Alabama or whatever, you would probably be fine. But if they knew that you were Jewish, that would probably be a little dicey. I'll tell you my experience with people from the South. Yeah. I, you know, I once had some friends that were from West Virginia. And her dad, like this girl, her dad was even in this um, white supremacist mm. gang or something. Like he, he had like a swastika tattoo, you know? Mm. And so this girl, she found out I was Jewish. We were friends. And she freaked out. But then she got over it. You know? She just like accepted it. And that's been my experience with people on the right. Hmm. It's like they're not individually anti-Semitic. Right, right. They're they're like collective or systemically or whatever. They're opposed to they're they're opposed to collective Jewishness, but not individual Interesting. Jews. Interesting. Right, right. Which is a really fascinating phenomenon. But they are, you know, they have become the, the the reflection, you know, the shadow mirror reflection of the left. And so now they're talking about like group strategy. That's a big one for like anti-Semitism. It's the Jewish group strategy that is undermining civilization. The word is group strategy? Yeah. I've never heard that before. Yeah, so groups have different ways they survive uh -huh. and the jewish group strategy oh. is something like because they don't traditionally they didn't have their own homeland for the right. longest time right and so they were always basically they they were dependent upon host countries various countries to host them and the the supposed group strategy for jews is uh it's it's something like ethnocentrism for me multiculturalism for thee and so they so so by necessity they have to promote a multiculturalist ethic in their host countries because uh, they want to be accepted and embraced in a foreign yes. land okay but to keep themselves together and keep themselves you know developing and surviving continuing they necessarily have to practice ethnocentrism, mm. doing what's best for the Jews. And so this is a this is seen as a kind of uh, duplicitous um, double standard. Ah, I got it. Multiculturalism for thee, my host country, ethnocentrism for me, the Jews, us. So we got to stick together, but we have to promote multiculturalist ethic, which, according to the right, undermines national solidarity, national identity. Mm. You know, it undermines the homogeneity that they see as, which, you know, there's probably some truth to it at some stage. Uh, they see that as like necess as a necessity in order to have a strong, you know, strong national identity. Right. It's necessary to survive. And to, you know, they want to preserve their, their unique identity, which formed in the sort of uh, laboratory or Petri dish of the bound, boundaries of their country. Mm -hmm. 
and so they you know that's that's sort of the latest thing is the the group strategy is undermining necessarily it's necessarily even if no individual jew this is the critical thing no individual jew has any they don't necessarily have any antipathy towards their hosts they don't necessarily have this nefarious agenda uh just the nature of the necessity of survival requires that they embody this double standard right and the right. double standard itself is corrosive to the ethnocentric the national identity ethno-national identity right. so and so there uh, so so that so basically we're getting again into this kind of systemic jewishness you know it's like the collective impact their collective impact that you don't find on the individual level so it's like an emergent property yeah yeah so once again you know we found another way to make jews like destruct you know bad right. people bad right. influence so yeah anyway i i know I, the, the who's this is fella here. this is my landlord's dog who's being extremely annoying hey get away from me I'm your landlord's dog my, my landlords are out so i'm using their their living room to, to oh okay use. cool um, but yeah, you know, the the Jewish, I mean, like growing up in Hawaii, where uh, all the white people receive racism all the time, you know, there was, a, in my high school, there was um, Beat Up the Howleys Day, where like, uh, it was, the, the thing about Hawaii is it's interesting, it's a reverse colorism. So the darker you are, the cooler you are. And the lighter you are, the more you're going to get your ass kicked at the beach or whatever. So you better become like a surfer dude, kind of like, you know, assimilate into that culture, right? Ah, oh, interesting. Um. Yeah, it was really interesting because I, I still remember when I was a kid, there was a girl who was like, I think she's like Filipino Hawaiian and like every guy thought she was like the hottest girl in the world. She's like super dark skin. And my initial reaction was like, I don't think she's like that hot. This was like fifth, like fourth grade or something. Right. But eventually I started, I started to like believe that <laughs> or like kind of like, I don't know what you call it, enculturate or was socialized yeah. into that norm. So today I still think that dark, dark skinned women are like the hottest. That's fascinating. And we actually, and white people actually have a similar thing. We're like, mm. they spend so much money and time getting tan. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> you know, but we you know, cherish darker skin. Whereas everywhere else, it's usually lighter skin. It's like, right. why can't anyone just be happy with who they are? Right, exactly. <laughs> but you know, the, the anti-Semitism thing, it's like, just made zero sense to me my whole like i just i still do not understand like i don't even i don't even have like a emotional impulse to like get it you know like like if i wanted to tune into like uh like a perspective like a white supremacist right who thinks black people or brown people are inferior and white people like okay like if i i can take that perspective and like try to think i'm kind of feeling it right yeah anti-semitism to me is just like like jews are to me just like hollies like there's not just, that distinction to me just never made sense we're in Hawaii well the thing about Jews is that they tend to be very successful mm -hmm. and so um, 
I think it was David Marshall who said he was, maybe he got this from Thomas Sowell, mm-hmm. but it's something like people are resentful, you know, people get resentful by either your failure or your success. Mm-hmm. So generally the people that are being discriminated against are either being, they're really failing in the society or they're really succeeding. And when people succeed in a different country, if you know Jews are succeeding in their host country, it can be seen as at the expense of someone else right, from right. that country. So there's a lot of resentment about Jewish success. Makes sense. And um, but of course, you know, they would say, oh, but they only succeed because they're they're you know shady they're right dishonest deceptive so that's a big part of it Mm, mm, mm. and you know as somebody that grew up uh around a lot of jews i've developed plenty of my own (laughs) anti-semitism well tell me more about that Oh man, should I? <laughs> should I perpetuate? Uh... <laughs> this is not specific to Jews, mm-hmm. or it's not exclusive to Jews, but there was like a kind of materialism that I noticed that I sort of rejected at a young age. Interesting jewelry you know and i kind of you know i get it historically like jewelry is really interesting it's like it's it's expensive and it's Mm -hmm. small so it's the kind of thing that you can take with you when you have to you know it's it's wealth that you can take with you when you have to free flee your country so so there is this kind of like material, like preoccupation with materiality and with jewelry that I experienced from family members and stuff like that. Hmm. So I don't know if that if I, that can be really generalized to all Jews or something, but it is called jewelry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there is this some kind of Jewish association with it. Mm. I don't know. I haven't really looked much at my anti-Semitism. <laughs> and I probably should at some point. But um, And then, you know, another thing was like temple politics and stuff that I re- reacted to. Hmm. It just seemed like there was nothing really sacred going on there. It was a social scene. And that's not specific to Jews. That's obviously... Uh, ob- that happens with Christians and every other culture and religion um you know loses its when they lose their sacredness they Mm -hmm. sort of becomes a just like a social scene or something culture right um but for me that you know my relation personal upper left relationship to jews is like uh i guess my my attitude is there's nothing sacred really sacred there it's just it's whatever it's that it's an old childish 
view. But I'm just being sort of open and honest about my interiors, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. my personal history, because I rejected religion at a really young age. And so mm. it's probably really easy to make, you know, the Jews the oppressive people and they're oppressing me by just being religious. And then, then in high school, it was the Christians and now they're the oppressive group. Mm -hmm. And it was all dramatic, <laughs> teenager stuff. Like nobody was oppressing me. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah, the material thing is interesting because there was a lot of, uh, a lot of my Japanese relatives, not necessarily the ones who live in Hawaii, but on the, on the mainland, right, are... Um, like my mom and I talked a lot about this. Like there is a very materialistic kind of culture. Uh, my family was not because my mom was a Buddhist. I grew up in a Buddhist temple in Hawaii. Um, so I was kind of cool. that, you know, alternative background. And, you know, my, my dad was a teacher. And so we didn't really get sucked into the more like whatever, yuppie, you know, lifestyle or whatever. But um, that was always, that was always hard for me, you know, growing up as a kid and not having any friends who were Japanese. Uh, because there was just such a, I, I really, from a young age, valued, you know, spirituality and religion and existential types of exploration, and they didn't, yeah. right? So all my friends were, you know, later on were white because those were the environments I was, I gravitated towards and um, didn't connect with, you know, my own people, right? So, yeah. Did that ever change? No. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> With the internalized white supremacy. There we go. There we go. Well, we are we just we just hit I think two hours. Is that Holy right? crap, is that true? It went by so fast. Time flies, man. Yeah. But thank you, man. This is this has been a lot of fun. It's been a Yeah, it's a lot of fun for me too. Great and to meet stimulating you. and Hopefully uh, it'll be educational and informative to these heathens in the oasis. Bye, heathens. Thanks for watching. Bye, heathens.